What's going on, everyone, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here in the evening hours of Sunday, June 18th, 2023. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. As we're back in the saddle here, talking about a Cardinals series win for the first time since the 21st of May, which almost seems too unbelievable to be real, but it is real as the Cardinals went nearly a month between series victories. But they got back on the board with the final two games over the weekend against New York, taking down the Mets on Saturday and Sunday in Queens to get back in a situation where they claim a series. Now, still eight and a half games back in the Central Division. That's the bad news because the Brewers beat up on the Pirates this weekend, and so the Cardinals don't really gain any ground. But it finally feels good, I think, for the Cardinals to get that winning feeling back. It's not one that's been very familiar for them. And so even though the team is still in uh, kind of a, a dire strait when it comes to the division standings in the Central Getting to 29-43, and 43, heading out to Washington, D.C. It'll be an afternoon game on Monday with the federal holiday for Juneteenth. That puts the Cardinals and Nationals on the board at about 3 o'clock Central time and a big opportunity for the Cardinals to continue this road trip in the right direction. But tonight on B-Shape Daily, we'll break down the last couple of games. Friday's game, Cardinals lost that one. The offense didn't show up. It kind of felt like at the beginning of the series that they were in for maybe a long road trip once again. But able to right the ship on Saturday and Sunday thanks to some pretty solid performances by the offense. We'll talk about how the offense is starting to tick up. We'll break down who's hot and uh, who's potentially looking to still get back into a good rhythm offensively. Talk about some of the performances from those games. We'll talk about the fact that Jordan Hicks appears to be, at least for right now, the Cardinals' new closing pitcher as he finished off both Saturday and Sunday's games. So all that and more coming up tonight on B-Shave Daily. Thank you guys for being back with me. I do apologize for a bit of the layoff that we've had. I think this is maybe the first stretch of the season. Even when I had some weekend trips I was going on where three days in a row of no B-Shave Daily because the Cardinals had the off day Thursday, and so we banged that one, and then nothing Friday, nothing Saturday. But we're back in the saddle here. That's something that we'll try to avoid happening too often in the future, but there were some circumstances this weekend that – uh, sort of necessitated it. I appreciate those who reached out on Friday after I had mentioned on Twitter and on YouTube that just due to some personal reasons, we wouldn't be having a, a podcast or a live stream on Friday. And some of you already know this, but the reason behind that was we got the news on Friday night that my Nana had passed away. And so that was just a tough night for the family for sure. And so appreciated everybody uh, for the support on that and just being understanding as everybody was about a little delay in the B-Shape Daily podcasting. And so I uh, went ahead and took Friday off. And, of course, the Cardinals didn't do a, a whole lot to talk about on Friday as it was. And so at the time, I just did not feel like I would be able to to get behind the microphone with you guys. And then Saturday, I actually, uh, my wife and I had planned for quite some time to be at Bush Stadium on Saturday night, not for baseball, but because of the uh, the Luke Combs, Flatland Cavalry, and everybody else that was uh, the playing the concert there on Saturday, and so if you guys follow me on Twitter, you probably saw uh, a lot of the pictures I was posting from that. Had a, a really good time Saturday, and then we had uh, some family events for, for Father's Day today. But here in the evening, ready to get going with you guys. So once again, thanks for everybody for bearing with me, and uh, we should be uh, able to to keep the podcast rolling here pretty regularly. But thanks to all the, the folks who reached out, and, and everybody was really kind about everything, so I appreciate that tremendously. Uh, if you guys 
are not subscribed on Spotify, would love you uh, to follow the show, B-Shape Daily, on Spotify. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts as well. And head to YouTube, youtube.com slash at bshafer12. Same as my Twitter handle, Instagram handle, and everything like that. The Brendan Schaefer YouTube channel, where we uh, have been doing a lot of live streams, have been getting it rolling with uh, the live chat. It gets hot and heavy. And I'm kind of curious, the next live stream we do, which will hopefully be early this week, uh, maybe be able to get to it on Monday, but but sometime for sure early this week. Curious to see how Cardinals fans will be feeling after finally the Redbirds getting back into the saddle with a series win. Like I had said, Friday was a tough one, and they just really they, they didn't show a lot of fight in that game on Friday, but we saw a different version of the Cardinals in the next couple of days, and I think you can trace it back to one man in, in regard to the offense, which a lot of offensive contributions from different players, but I do find it noticeable that the Cardinals finally get this series win, and it comes in a stretch of games where Jordan Walker homers in consecutive games, hitting one out on Saturday, and then again in Sunday's game on Father's Day. Starting to heat up. Jordan Walker now with another 10-plus game hitting streak. I think on Sunday extended that to 11 games, and I believe Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch had the stat that in Cardinals history, there have been just three guys, three players, who in uh, age 21 or younger season compiled multiple 10-plus game hitting streaks because, of course, Jordan Walker had a dozen or 13 in a row to begin the career uh, back at the beginning of the season. I forget the exact number, but he, he set the record, Ted Williams, all that good stuff, and then now he's doing it again, extending the hitting streak to 11 games in Sunday's game. Only three people have ever done it. Jordan Walker joining Albert Pujols and Rogers Hornsby Hornsby, of course, in the Hall of Fame. Albert Pujols will be a first ballot Hall of Famer, should be unanimous. Uh, I I know that's something that's rarely happened in the history of uh, the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, but I can't fathom anybody not including Albert Pujols on their first ballot, which is all to say some pretty impressive things that we're seeing right now from Jordan Walker. You know, he had the nice start to the career, and then the weird situation where it seemed like they weren't sure he was going to get outfield playing time regularly. And so the Cardinals send him to Memphis. They say he wants to, that they want to see him work on launching the ball into the air more instead of hitting so many ground balls, which to me felt a little nitpicky. I understand that. And we said this at the time, understood the reasoning behind it, but also when it comes to 20 year old baseball players at the time he was 20, now he's since turned 21 in May. When it comes to guys that are this young, what do you always hear about the notion that, oh, he'll grow into his power and once he does kind of look out? And sometimes that's just something that has to come with time. The Cardinals wanted to manufacture, though, more of that from him, and so they got him to AAA for the first time in his career, by the way, because he finished up last year in AA Springfield and never did play a game for the Memphis Redbirds until earlier this season. So was working on those things down there, and then you, you all saw the interview that we talked about here on B-Shape Daily where – he basically said, oh, a lot of that got into my head a little bit too much, and really I just got to go back to being me and trusting my swing because if I'm not making contact at all, uh, who cares whether the contact is in the air or on the ground? It's not going to serve much of a purpose. So a lot of that was Jordan Walker just kind of getting back to his instincts while also still trying to, I think, implement some of the things he was working on down there with the hitting coaches and things of that nature. But Jordan Walker has since come on strong uh, upon returning to the Cardinals and He's slugging the baseball. He's putting the ball in play with authority. He's taking some walks. I'm looking here at his uh, last seven games splits. He's 9 for 24 with a couple of home runs, which came in the last two days. 
But the five walks versus six strikeouts is another one that stands out to me. And again, strikeouts are are commonplace in today's game. But the fact that he is is counteracting some of that by also taking his walks lately, I think is just really impressive. He's got the numbers on the season now up to an OPS of 850, which, uh, I mean, that's pretty notable to me. The fact that, uh, you know, well above where Nolan Gorman is, a guy who really started strong and then kind of, has uh has has cratered off a little bit. We'll talk about we'll talk about him. We'll talk about everybody in the lineup and kind of uh, take a census a little bit of where these guys are right now. But to think that Jordan Walker is is right there behind Goldschmidt in terms of OPS. Goldie's at eight seventy four and had a nice weekend as well with uh, a home run that he hit on Saturday and then had a two run double as well in Sunday's win. So you you can trust that Goldschmidt continuing to do nice things for the Cardinals offensively. But other than that, I mean, Jordan Walker has been like the most impactful hitter. Nolan Arenado had a big weekend as well, uh, using the dad strength on Father's Day to hit a couple of home runs for the Cardinals. Uh, the the second of which ended up getting that kind of response from the Cardinals bench that I think everybody was looking for. And we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the body language of this team. And I think you did see a difference in Saturday and Sunday, especially with what it looked like when Arenado hit the go-ahead home run, Jordan Walker is uh, there on deck just absolutely going nuts, and everybody in the dugout, arms raised, they're clapping, they're on the front rail, things you like to see. Brandon Kiley put the gif up there on Twitter. He's at BK Sports Talk, Brandon Kiley of 101 ESPN. But he made this tweet and said, the STL cards body language has been so bad for so long that I forgot what it looks like when they're starting to believe in themselves. Brandon Kylie added, this is what it's supposed to look like when your teammate hits a massive home run. And I agreed with it. I know a lot of people, it's kind of a, the, the, the debate going on Twitter as well. Does this body language thing mean anything or is it just being completely overblown? And I retweeted BK and said to all the people who said the previous body language stuff was being overblown, do you notice the difference watching this versus kind of some of the things that we had seen? If you go back, you can remember uh, I'll probably get these out of order, but you can remember the Texas Rangers series when the Cardinals won a game down there in Texas and the handshake line after the fact was very lackluster and there was a gif of that that was on the broadcast or, or a video clip of the guys just kind of standing around, just looking very very lackluster in their in their celebration, which again, that was to end that Rangers series, which also ended the road trip and that was the only game the Cardinals won on the road trip. And so it's good to contextualize all these things where you say, well, that's that kind of team, even if they win a game that day, maybe they're not feeling much of a uh, celebratory mood. Whereas Sunday, it was a go ahead home run to ultimately get the Cardinals, the series win that they so desperately craved in New York to kick off a road trip and, and, and have a happy flight where you actually won a series, right? It's not just like win the final game of a, of a road trip in order to, you know, scrape away a, a one in five stretch instead of going to one six. So, I can definitely appreciate and understand the differences, why they maybe wouldn't have been going so rah-rah during the other times. Um, but I think the problem, too, is some people uh, were tweeting back at me after uh, they they were sending the gif of Alec Burleson kind of walking through the dugout after a home run there in that one nothing uh, win over the Rangers, where everybody's just looking kind of pretty bored in the dugout. But, pe- but people would say, well, that's multiple pitches later that they're showing it. We can't always control what the TV cameras are going to show and when they show it. And so it's it's best not to just snipe out an opinion based on these little three-second clips that we view. 
But there was one of Jordan Walker that I can recall that he's rounding the bases and it's just Andrew Kisner kind of banging the front rail and everybody else is at best giving a little golf clap, just kind of very nonchalant about it. So, like, that was another example. And uh, I think there was even an additional example. Not It wasn't the moment that uh, I was sent by uh, by Scott there on Twitter of the Cardinals Gifts uh, tweet where, where Cardinals Gifts captioned it, all smiles after that potential game-winning bomb from Bertelson. And it was some sarcasm there because there were there were no smiles in the dugout. But it's fair to say that's an 0-2 count on the next batter. Probably not the best example of uh, the, the the reason that we would say, hey, is this Cardinals team got a got a body language issue going on? I think even earlier before that, in the clips that you saw from that Burleson home run, it was kind of just kind of lackluster in terms of the way the team was was going about it. And that was, I think, the thing that I noticed on a on a couple of different occasions, maybe two or three different occasions during the long losing skid that they had, especially on that road trip. I do think it was a thing. And now I think it's very easy to say, well, now the team is winning and they won a game on Saturday and you see an opportunity then late with a go-ahead home run to win on the road Sunday and the differences. I do agree that maybe we overblow it by kind of picking and choosing when we notice it and when we don't. But it's, again, just based on when the cameras happen to be uh, showing those things and they put it on the broadcast. That's in, in most cases, our only opportunity. But like I had said previously, for that win in Texas, I had a buddy who's a Royals fan. He was at this game, not a fan of the Cardinals, doesn't care about the, the Rangers, just happened to be there because he lives in the area. And he even remarked to me that, yeah, he was kind of waiting to see if there was going to be any celebration on the mound after that win in Texas, and there really wasn't. So was there a body language issue for the Cardinals? I, yeah, I think it was noticeable, but can it be easily explained by the fact that Teams that win tend to have more fun, and, and teams that don't tend to maybe be a little bit miserable at times. I, absolutely. Um, it, and it's kind of a chicken or the egg sort of argument where you say, well, can you can you change the mojo of a team by by investing in your teammates and getting hyped about something that, you know, is maybe not going to guarantee your win yet, but, but that can be something that is kind of the snowball rolling down the hill effect, and it can allow you to then manifest some of that excitement. I don't know. It's probably not as big of a deal as the amount of time that we spent on it. But I just wanted to say now that the vibes are looking much better for this team in a situation like we saw on Sunday, it's at least worth doubling back and mentioning after we did spend a, a decent amount of time talking about maybe the negativity of what the body language looked like for the Cardinals. So looking a lot better. They score five runs on Saturday in a 5-3 to three win over the Mets. And uh, that was the game pitched by Adam Wainwright, who got into the seventh inning. They take him out there and uh, was a little bit adventurous for, for Pallante to get out of the rest of that seventh inning on Saturday uh, because he walked a man, and you know what can tend to happen sometimes when you allow free base runners on. Ultimately, Pallante able to finish out the seventh after giving up a hit and a walk. Gallegos looking good in the eighth. And then how about that? The order of operations being switched a little bit, and we noticed it Saturday with Jordan Hicks coming out for the ninth inning after Gio handles the eighth. And Jordan Hicks looked fantastic, striking out the side in the ninth as the Cardinals get the win on Saturday. And we'll double back a little bit to talk about the offense here in a moment because other than the guys we've discussed like Goldschmidt, Arenado, who who really are not a struggling Saturday, but coming up with the, uh, the huge game for St. Louis on Sunday, uh, there are a couple of other guys I would like to highlight from an offensive perspective. And then with the notes that we have on Lars Newpar, I also want to talk about what could this team look like in terms of the the alignment, especially in the outfield and how that might affect the infield. I want to get into that as well because uh, Lars Newpar had a big day with Memphis on Sunday, which leads me to believe that 
he should be in short order on a flight to, to Washington, D.C., where the Cardinals uh, will begin their next series on Monday. So we're going to talk about some of the offensive stuff, but I want to still get into this from the the bullpen core and the fact that it looks like Jordan Hicks is the team's new closer and the fact that he can do it back-to-back in a situation where Sunday starting pitching let you down. The Cardinals, to win a game like they did on Sunday where Matt Libertor only gives you four innings and just didn't really look sharp, curveball didn't look sharp, uh, had only thrown 77 pitches, so it wasn't really a pitch count issue when he's removed after just 4.0 innings pitch, but a couple of walks, four hits, and I'll be darned if just about everybody doesn't come around to score against him. Five runs all earned and did give up one home run. So that's a step back for Libertor, and if the Cardinals are able to sort of work their way back into consideration in this NL Central, we're getting into that period of the next month to maybe five or six weeks where they've got to evaluate, can Libertor down the stretch be expected to give this team quality starts on a regular basis to where they can continue to rely upon him in the five spot of the rotation. Like I've said, you got to give him the leeway to work through some of these struggles, but the ERA of 6.12 is what it is right now for the Cardinals. And so uh, it's going to get to a point where he'll have to prove it. Otherwise I think it would be reasonable as long as the Cardinals are within striking distance to consider maybe all avenues in terms of trade possibilities. Um, but don't have a lot else to add to the uh, Libertor game other than you go four innings and give up five runs, and then you have Chris Stratton giving up uh, a two-run home run in the fifth inning of a game. If that's your situation and you still win that game, what a performance it must have been by the offense. But I want to credit the rest of the relief core as well. Guys like Palante, they they needed him on Sunday, and he comes through with an inning in the third uh, after pitching in Saturday's game as well. Drew Verhagen improving to four and two, or pardon me, four and zero oh on the season um, has has not been given a loss ever and he's got now four wins that he's been credited with inning in two thirds of clean baseball on Sunday in a game that was definitely hanging in the balance obviously with uh, the home run from Arenado the second of the game coming there in the eighth inning or pardon me the top of the ninth inning allowing for Hagen to get credited with that win I mean that's a leverage spot if there ever was one right like if you're Ollie Marmel you don't have a lot of options when your starter only gives you four and you've got to cover basically five innings of leverage, which is what it was because this game ended up being tight all the way to the very end. But when you have that situation brewing and then you, you're you getting ready for the ninth inning and you've got double barrel down in the bullpen, they had Jordan Hicks working and they had Giovanni Gallegos getting ready. And normally, if this were a couple weeks ago, you would think, okay, if they take the lead here, Gallegos gets the ball and he's going to have a save opportunity. If not, Jordan Hicks probably is the guy that that maybe goes because it's not a save chance. The roles have been completely reversed, and I and I have a hard time arguing that it's not the right call. I think it is the way that Jordan Hicks has been pitching, and I know that that potentially sets up some very scary scenarios for Cardinals fans down the stretch because, yeah, Jordan Hicks has been prone throughout this season to uh, to give away the free pass. He's walked the first batter that he's faced. Um, almost as, as many times as, as any reliever in MLB this season when it comes to walking the first batter of a relief appearance, that's been kind of a problem for Jordan Hicks this season. However, it's been more few and far between in, in some of these recent appearances that he's had. And you can look at his numbers over the past. Uh, I'll just check it out here. The past 15 games, which I don't know exactly how far that stretches back for him, but he's got a 1.56 ERA over his past 15 appearances and that's with a .07 whip. So 
he has really been locking it in. You remember earlier this season, Jordan Hicks had an ERA, oh, in the six or seven range, it seemed like there for a little bit. He's been able to uh, level those numbers out quite considerably to where he's now at a 4.15 ERA. And at least with what we saw on Saturday and Sunday, Ollie Marmol not hesitating to go to Hicks in a save situation on back-to-back days. Um, that's huge. I mean, he's one of the MVPs of this series win for the Cardinals, for them to be able to come away from New York with two out of three despite losing game one and, and doing it in a pretty flat style where they just didn't come remarkably close. Uh, Miles Michaelis was getting hit around on Friday. Uh, I was just noticing, man, every time he threw a breaking ball, I don't know if he was that he was tipping or telegraphing it, but just from from my vantage point watching on TV, I'm like, oh, that mechanical delivery looks like it's going to be a curveball, and I can't identify. I'm not smart enough. These pitching coaches and analysts probably do a better job of it than I ever could. But I was looking at Michaelis going, I, this dude's just the the curveball looks so flat, and it's not you know it's not sharp. It's kind of laying up in the zone, and it was batting practice on on Friday. So to go from that in a game where the offense was just lifeless in that game to be able to do what they did to bounce back and win a series despite some of the real hardships of of Sunday in particular where your starter only goes four innings and gives up five runs that's I mean that's just a credit to the offense for staying with it and being able to to get it done I was impressed too with what the offense did on Saturday against Kodai Senga who has got the nasty fork ball and I figured it would be a heavy day of strikeouts for the Cardinals offensively, and it, it was with eight strikeouts for Senga. But he ends up getting into the seventh inning, but you were able to punch four runs across against him, a couple of home runs. And so that, I thought, was a really telling sign for the Cardinals where it, I just didn't, coming into the game, I thought there'd be no hope. I thought Senga is probably going double digits in terms of strikeouts, and Adam Wainwright's just been getting hit around so much that it's hard to think he's going to be able to keep enough balls in play to be able to give the Cardinals a chance to win against the, a really tough customer on the other side. Adam Wainwright gave up a couple of home runs in that game on Saturday, but for him to get through six and a third and get them a quality start, I'm still going to call that a, a step forward for Wayno. And it really does feel like this year, and I know his ERA is still kind of gnarly, 5.56 for Adam Wainwright, uh, does get win number 198 for his career. I get that the numbers don't look great. When you have a five and a half ERA and we're in mid-June, you kind of reach a point where you go, yeah, maybe that's just what he is now. I would say this, remember that he did miss the first few weeks of the season with injury, and so his numbers can still change for the better here if he's able to put up some zeros in some future outings. He's got to get rid of those couple of pitches per game that get taken deep. And I, it's a, a hard thing to do. It's easier to say when you understand that pitch to contact is just going to be part of Adam Wainwright's game in 2023. It's just the reality of where he is. Only three strikeouts in that game on Saturday, but he pitched well enough to give a a sliding Cardinals team a chance to win and credit to him for grinding it out. Credit to, uh, as I mentioned, the bullpen with Palante Gallegos and Hicks uh, getting it done. I like the order of operations there. I think they're going to need Gallegos to be really sharp, and it was good to see him have a good game Saturday. But they're going to need Gallegos to still be a key spot, a key guy in this bullpen because you can't just have one guy do it all every time. We we learned that when it came to Ryan Helsley that you say, well, he's not going to be available all these games. I would imagine that Jordan Hicks after a back-to-back is not going to be available on Monday afternoon. And so that's going to be a spot where Gio is probably going to have to get back into the mix after just one day of rest. 
Um, they they rode Polante pretty heavily. He he got up to 98 miles per hour with a couple of his fastballs over the weekend, and and he can he can definitely get it up there. Is really trying to work his way into some more consideration, I think, for leverage. But just because you have to, right? With without Ryan Helsley in this bullpen, we've talked about how the the totem pole kind of everybody needs to move up one rung, one rung on the ladder to handle situations that typically they haven't been uh, very accustomed to. And if guys like Chris Stratton, who had been solid in the early stage of the of the season, go out like he did on Sunday and, and give up a two-run home run, a couple of walks, and uh, I think it was uh, Tommy Pham that ended up getting Chris Stratton in that one. Like, that, that's going to end up being a little bit tricky because you just don't have a ton of other options. So really good that Verhagen emerged from Sunday's game. But again, how much confidence do you have in Drew Verhagen coming into a leverage spot the next time? How much do you have in, in Gallegos after uh, some hot and cold recently? How much even do you have in Jordan Hicks, which I think a lot of Cardinals fans would say, well, I look at the numbers and I can I can say, well, I should be confident. I look at 103, 104, and I should be confident. But I would say still his command was a little bit, a little bit saucy when it came to the fastball on Sunday. Missing some locations, but can get away with it when you're when you're doing it at 103. But again, what will happen when he does walk that bad, or, or things do feel like they're going off the rails a little bit? Like the the rescue guys in this bullpen, they they aren't really there. It's going to be really interesting to see um, how Ali Marmol has to manage things moving forward. Because again, when I look at bullpen management, I look at some of the issues that this Cardinals relief core has had. I think among the most blown saves in MLB this season. Uh, which is is kind of a maybe a little bit of a misnomer just because it doesn't mean always the ninth inning those blown saves are coming, but you'll get credited as a reliever with a blown save if you're the seventh inning or eighth inning and your, your team is up by a save situation. And even though we know modern baseball, you're probably not finishing that game with a two or three inning save. It's still considered a blown save in those late innings when uh, you give up the lead. And so the Cardinals have had leads that have been blown by their by their relief core with some frequency. And it's just a little bit of a scary notion, I think, coming into this stretch where they've got to basically be perfect. You can't have a huge margin for error. You've used it up already, even after the, the wins that they accrued on Saturday, Sunday. You're still looking at a team that's 14 games below 500, eight and a half out in the division. It doesn't do the Cardinals right now much good to, to be looking at the standings and things like that. You just have to continue to go win series is really going to be the bottom line. And, and Ollie Marmel would say, well, you just got to win every day. And uh, you know, try to try to win that day's game, and that's what they're going to continue to try to do. They have a real opportunity here with going to Washington, and then uh, maybe getting some team mojo on that London trip. I know it's only two games against the Cubs out there in London, um, but they're definitely going to have to take advantage of every opportunity that they have. I think the bullpen is going to be a big part of that, and I'll be very curious to see uh, how they sort of cope with no Ryan Helsley for a little while, and and we'll see if he's able to to make it back maybe after that London series. Uh, but when it's a forearm strain, that's a little ominous. And I would say right now, you just have to kind of put the notion of Helsley's return out of mind. And for the Cardinals, it's keep it as close as you can in this division. And then, Mo, I think you have to look at going and getting some bullpen help. If, in fact, 2023 can be salvaged, it may have to be done with some some reinforcements added because uh, you've got some guys that can definitely rise above their station. If a Drew Verhagen can pitch like he did on Sunday, and Jordan Hicks can can really fall into line and assimilate into that closer spot for a little while. You you know that can be a, a game changer for sure. I just think depth wise, you don't have the reinforcements from Memphis that you would you would customarily expect to be able to get the job done. 
they the the guys that I think they came into the year thinking this is what our our like our right-handed and left-handed you know handedness doesn't even matter but our bullpen depth from the minors and and that that shuttle that pipeline could look like I think it's largely been a, a failure guys like uh, Guillermo Zuniga uh, Jake Walsh different guys down there that uh, and Zach Thompson obviously going from relief at the beginning of the season to now he's part of the uh, the starting organizational depth there as a rotation piece. So a lot of what they, I think, hoped would be there is is not materialized in that way. And so it's going to be up to the guys that are there to keep it close, and then you maybe get some reinforcements if uh, this team can prove that they're within striking distance enough to make that worthwhile. It does get a little tricky. You'd say, well, you're not adding a, a rental reliever to this Cardinals team, right, because they're, they're probably kind of out of it for 2023. Well, they're going to keep scrapping away and trying to win games, um, but I don't know what that number has to be. If you've got to be within five games or four games or what it needs to be for John Mozeliak uh, around mid to late July to say, you know what, we're willing to add relief help for this roster uh, if we believe having a, a, an edge in the bullpen could be the thing that flips us from being a handful of games out to potentially getting into the mix to, to win the division. And I know a lot of Cardinals fans will say, oh, don't worry about winning the division. They, they're not going to do anything when they get into the playoffs anyway. They're inferior to all these other NL teams. That's fine. I get it. But crazier things have happened. 2006, 2011, they, they sneak in both times, and it, it sort of just ends up being one of those deals where uh, lightning lightning strikes and, and you catch fire in the right moments. So they're not, even though Cardinals fans would not be impressed, you say at the beginning of the season, if we were talking about, hey, win, just win the division, that would be an accomplishment. I think you would have had a lot of angry Cardinals fans uh, responding to that statement because the notion of, just winning the central, I don't think was enough for a lot of people coming into the year. The mindset had sort of shifted to, okay, once you win the division, how do you advance beyond that in October, which is a a very niche style of baseball and very difficult to kind of ascertain what a team needs to do and how you need to be built to thrive in those moments. But that was kind of where our attention had been turned. Now you've had to completely scrap all of that. You're renovating the entire kitchen right now, mid season. That's the way it is. If you're uh, looking for uh, just an off-the-wall analogy. You can't just expect to have a completely finished product when uh, the entire floor is ripped up and you have to put the foundation down first. So I still think it's okay to be talking about, hey, can the NL Central be in play or not? Realistically, a lot of Cardinals fans might say, hey, that ship has sailed, but I'm still comfortable saying, hey, look, before you can talk about getting success when you get to October, you got to first get to October. And so I'm meeting the Cardinals where they live right now and where they live is as a team just teetering on the periphery of, of a reasonable conversation of can they stay in the divisional race. Um, and because the NL Central is so bad, I still think the answer to that is yes. Although watch out for the Reds, man. I said a few days ago on the last live that we did that I'd be looking at the Reds as a team to potentially surprise some people and just go ahead and, and, and never stop looking good the way they have over the past couple of weeks since uh, calling Ellie De La Cruz to the big leagues. He had an infield single on Sunday that just boggles the mind. Ground ball down the first baseline to the the diving first baseman that couldn't beat him to the bag. Uh, he's a, a very special talent and uh, got a lot of tools and a lot of skills. The Reds are now a couple games above 500, I believe, just a game or a half game out of first place behind the Brewers, who have been winning a lot lately, too. So definitely going to be curious to see how this shapes up. But the bullpen stuff, I wanted to kind of cover that because I, I do think it's a, a key aspect of where the Cardinals will look to right the ship this year and honestly just from a on paper standpoint you're not super impressed with what you see in terms of like high-end ability you like geo you like where hicks is but you know the risk is always there for him to kind of backslide into 
uh, some command trickiness. And then in terms of like the depth guys, the guys like Stratton, Palante, we've seen Cabby be pretty hit and miss. Uh, can you rely upon Verhagen in any way, shape, or form? Like down the line in that bullpen, it's going to be interesting to see how those guys trend in the days ahead because if those guys all kind of round into form and, and look like they're capable of holding up zeros, it, it, regardless of situation, that could be a game changer for the Cardinals. Um, but again, on paper, do you really expect it? Well, it worked for the last couple of days during this Mets series. They'll have to hope. I mean, it's all they can do right now because the margin for error is nothing. Uh, they'll have to hope they can be able to continue it. But I don't mind the decision. What do you think, Cardinals fans? Jordan Hicks looking to be at least temporarily sliding into that closer role as a, a high leverage guy, as high as the leverage gets alongside uh, Giovanni Gallegos in that Cardinal bullpen for Ali Marmol. Let me know what you think in the YouTube comments, youtube.com slash at bshafer12. If you're listening on Spotify, head on over, type youtube.com slash at bshafer12 into your URL and subscribe to the Brendan Schaefer YouTube channel and throw your comments on there. They do have a, a comment ability on uh, Spotify, but it doesn't let me as the the podcast host interact with you really. So I think the best place to get your comments and, and kind of build that community with your fellow Cardinal fan is uh, the Brendan Schaefer YouTube page. So even if you listen on Spotify, feel free to drop by the YouTube comments on each video and uh, let people know what you think. I'm, I'm curious for the thoughts on how much you're trusting Jordan Hicks right now if he's really going to be the Cardinals closer for the interim as we kind of wait to see what the, the long-term ramifications are on Ryan Helsley are. I had mentioned I'm going to talk about the offense, and I will kind of do a, a quick run-through of the lineup and tell you some impressions of where each guy is right now. Uh, but I wanted to touch on the David Freeze thing first before I forget about it. And this may be something that we can expand further into when we go into the live streams or something later on this week. Um, but because it was big news from over the weekend, I wanted to make sure at least to touch on it briefly today. As uh, David Freeze... As we found out over the weekend, uh, I believe this was Saturday when the news came out, has declined the uh, induction into the Cardinals Hall of Fame, which is something that, uh, well, has never happened before when it comes to the Cardinals Hall of Fame. And so that was certainly not anything that anybody was expecting, I wouldn't think. But you know what? When I sit back and think about it, y yes, was I initially surprised? Of course I was. When the news came across, I was as surprised as anybody else. But when you think into it and you read the statement that he put out through the through the St. Louis Cardinals through the team I think you can kind of connect some dots and go you know what this this is what David Freeze feels is right for him and so I feel pretty strongly about uh Cardinals fans just kind of letting David Freeze make this decision for himself uh, and I saw some comments I was I didn't delve too deeply into the weeds on some of the replies to the tweets and some different things I've seen on social media where everybody's got a uh, an opinion on this, and, and sometimes it's an inflammatory one, which is what I believe uh, led David Freeze to actually tweeting about uh, or at least kind of referencing the situation himself, which I thought was interesting from over the weekend. I want to try to pull this one up real quick because after the news came out Saturday, David Freeze says, thank you to all the people who have zero opinion one way or another. You know how to live your life. Enjoy the rest of your summer with a, uh, a peace sign, which I thought was was kind of apt from David Freeze. But here's the statement and the part of it that I think is the most important to read. It begins where he says, and this was released through the Cardinals, uh, quote, this is something that I have given an extreme amount of thought to, humbly, even before the voting process began. I am aware of the impact I had helping the team bring great memories to the city I grew up in, including the 11th championship, but this honor means more to me which that last part of that sentence doesn't really make 
a lot. I, I don't really know what to make with that. But here's the line that I think was the most important, the biggest takeaway that I had from the statement. Quote, I look at who I was during my tenure, and that weighs heavily on me. And so I think a lot of Cardinals fans took that to mean, I look at who I was, and I look at my my stats, my five years or four or five years with the Cardinals, and think, you know, maybe I'm, I'm not worthy other than those couple of big moments in a World Series, which again, a hard thing to dismiss because it was arguably the biggest two swings in Cardinals history. Again, a lot of people, if you're listening to this podcast and you're of the younger generation, uh, I guess I can still call myself younger generation for a little while longer, turning 29 in a couple of weeks. But I was in high school when when David Freeze went down. When David Freeze, uh, game six, we'll see you tomorrow night. When all that was happening, I was a senior in high school and I was a big Cardinal fan. I've talked on this show about how I grew up a Cardinal fan. Now I write about the Cardinals. I podcast about the Cardinals. Uh, talk about them on the radio. Different perspective for me than it used to be. But at the time, unabashed Cardinals fan. Um, one of the best memories, you know, surrounding my sports fandom was was those couple of days period in 2011 when David Freeze uh, in, in Game 6 plays the hero, and then the Cardinals obviously go on to win Game 7. So if anybody is looking at this and saying, hey, David Freeze is deserving of that red jacket, I would be in that group of people. Because to me, when you look at the Cardinals Hall of Fame, I do think the criteria has to be different than thinking about Cooperstown and the MLB Hall of Fame. The Cardinals Hall of Fame is a fan vote. And the Red Ribbon Committee, which is usually comprised of several longstanding media members, but you've also got former managers often on those committees, uh, different former executives, people in the know when it comes to the Cardinals baseball and, and more importantly, the history of Cardinals baseball. And so they'll get the ballot of, of deserving candidates and then allow the fans to vote on it. So a guy like David Freeze, if he weren't considered worthy by a, a lot of people in the know and, and who really have seen enough Cardinal baseball over their history as a red ribbon committee, I believe is the terminology for it. He wouldn't have been on the ballot in the first place. And so I know a lot of people say, wow, David Freeze, you know, showing such humility to say he recognizes his numbers might not be as good as an Edgar Renteria or didn't have as many uh, years of contributions to the team as a, you know, I, I just pick out Renteria because I know that he's been a guy that's been on that ballot in recent years. And, you know, I can remember him from growing up, but, but he was on the Cardinals for, you know, five, six years or whatever it was. Like Matt Morris was on the recent ballot, Steve Carlton, you got all walking and hard. Like these aren't necessarily all, although Steve Carlton, but by and large, you're not talking about MLB hall of fame names, but it's about the contributions to the Cardinals. And so that's how these guys end up on these ballots in the first place. And it was no doubt that the first time David Freeze's name ever graced the fan vote ballot, he was going to get the most votes, and he would be inducted, and that was a given. And that's exactly the way that it played out this summer. However, he ends up declining the induction as a result. But I think the people who are looking at this and saying, oh, it's he looked at his stats and just, you know, he sees that it, he shouldn't have been considered anyway, and I saw a lot of bogus takes about that, that people think it's about the numbers. And I think it's about more than that, and I'm not trying to get too personal or, or speak out of turn with something that maybe I'm not intimately familiar with because I don't I don't know David Freeze personally, but he says, I, I look at who I was during my tenure and that weighs heavily on me. I think in all honesty, for David Freeze, it's it's common knowledge, some of the things that he was going through in terms of his personal life at the time when he was, was with the Cardinals. And ultimately, 
was was traded away from St. Louis, I think, by the Cardinals just to kind of give him an opportunity for a fresh start to be able to, uh, with some of the demons he was battling and different things he was was trying to, to manage in his personal life, uh, to be able to not just have to always live up to the, the moniker of being the hometown hero and everything that went along with that, the pressures of that, I think are, are it's something that only a guy like David Freeze could really know. There's not a lot of people in your corner who you could say, oh, they, they know what that's like. They, not many people have done the one crowning achievement of a career like David Freeze did. Uh, was a good, solid major league player for a number of years, right? But in terms of that one moment sort of defining your career and, and your life in many ways as a professional has got to be just a, something that messes with your head, I think, in the first place. But to know that he was going through some different things personally at the time and, and looks back on that period to to probably have some very complex feelings about it. I, I Again, like I didn't want to speak too firmly on any aspect of this because I haven't gotten, I haven't spoken to David Freeze about these things. And so I'm, it's not maybe my place, but the tweet that I sent about it to kind of sum it up is um, when the world, your hometown wants to tell you, you're the same as Gibby Brock, etc., from a period that was an intimate personal struggle. That's heavy. And that's kind of the way that I, I looked at it to say, guys, I think if you're making this about, and, and this is again, why David Freeze said, Hey, to everybody who has no opinion one way or the other, I appreciate you because I think for it even to be dissected the way that he obviously knew that it would be um, with the surprising decision that a lot of people didn't see coming. But I, I think he just, it doesn't do David Freeze any good, right, to, to kind of belabor this point. And I think the bottom line is I saw some wacky takes, man. People saying he owes it to, to Cardinals fans who, by being a Cardinal fan, they paid his salary and he owes it. Give me a break. If you're out there with that take, you know, I don't I don't even mind coming down with the hammer a little bit on you to say you are so far off base to, to make it about you. That's just selfishness as a fan. It's not your decision. It's not anything as a Cardinals fan that you're entitled to. You're not entitled to have David Freeze wear that jacket. You're not entitled to, to say he should have a statue outside Bush Stadium. I think you're missing the point a little bit if you feel like that is the way that it ought to go down when it's David Freeze's life that we're talking about, not yours as a Cardinals fan. Um, I think selfishness, honestly, from some fans who who came out and, and said that they had disappointed. It's okay to be disappointed because you wanted the chance to celebrate David Freeze. But when you step back and realize that, you know what, it's a it's about a maybe a lot more than than just your chance to to get to celebrate a memory that was good as a Cardinal fan. I really do think this is a case where you just got to respect that decision by David Freeze to know. Uh, that as he said in the statement, it's not one that he took lightly and it weighed heavily on him. Um, and he mentioned as well, feeling some regret over the fact that it took him so long to kind of come out with this decision. Uh, he said, I'm especially sorry to the fans that took the time to cast their votes. Cardinal Nation is basically the reason why I've unfortunately waited so long for this decision and made it more of a headache for so many people. Um, I feel strongly about my my decision. He said, understand how people might feel about it. I get it. I'll wear it. He said, but said, thank you for always being there for me. And I'm excited to be around the Cardinals as we move forward. Again, this is not David Freeze saying, I don't want to be associated with the Cardinals. He's saying, I don't feel comfortable being honored in that way. And his reason doesn't even matter. Honestly, it's his life. It's his opportunity to choose what he does with it. And I think that should be respected by Cardinals fans. Um, and so I, I saw a lot of people go, well, I read that statement. I didn't really understand what he, he didn't really explain why uh, I would focus on that line where he talked about it weighing heavily on him, the uh, 
the, the person he was. He said, I look at who I was during my tenure, and that weighs heavily on me. To me, that says maybe about more more than just baseball, and regardless of whatever it's about, it's really David Preeze's uh, prerogative to be able to make the decision that he wants to make and the one that he feels good about. So I, I, I had some disappointment with some Cardinals fans that I saw some of the takes that were flying around there about that over the weekend, but um, hopefully this explanation, which again, I'm no authority on the subject, like I said, but I feel like I've got a, a decent read on this one where maybe it's just best that Cardinals fans, uh, you know, continue to give David Freeze that love and, and, and just, you know, root for him as a person to, to be able to do whatever, whatever makes him happy in life. Because again, he did give you a moment as a Cardinals fan that, uh, that you'll never forget. And so, uh, it's, it's maybe, maybe not the most, uh, selfless thing to say, Oh, I, I need to be able to worship David Freeze every year think it's not something he's totally comfortable with and so there's nothing wrong with that and you can feel free to comment on that part of uh, this as well on YouTube but honestly I I, I that's one that's going to be a little bit more of a one-sided conversation for me uh, I, I I'm definitely want to know what people think but I'm not going to argue with anybody about it because like I said I, I think I'm seeing this one uh, better than some of the, the the fans that I saw out there where I just said let's let's respect the guy and, and not maybe make this about anything that it's not and and have his uh, opportunity to uh, move forward in whatever way he so chooses. But let me know what you think about that. Let me know, too, though, more than that, what you think about this current Cardinals team as we look into the offense a little bit. Because I've talked about how this needs to be a top-five offense if the Cardinals are going to get back into this thing and, and honestly avoid a pretty substantial losing season. I'm thinking 85 to 90 losses for sure if they don't end up with a top-five offense this year. Saturday's game, you saw it coming out a little bit. And this is, I mean, the guy that I really want to highlight more than anyone is Brennan Donovan whose name I don't think I've really said so far, he is absolutely going to have his numbers at the end of the season. I've been saying that even when he was down, that I liked the at-bats that he was taking, and, and now you're really starting to see it manifest a little bit more, where over the past seven games, he's hitting 375 with a 412 on base, 469 slug. So that's an OPS pushing 900, about 881, I want to say, doing some quick math. Last 15 games hitting 305, 388 on base with a 407 slug. He's going to be an 800 OPS guy. Um, maybe the numbers at the end of the year won't reflect that because of the downturn he had earlier on in the season. But he's up to three. Uh, pardon me, 736 for the OPS. The on base is up to 356. I think both those numbers end up being closer to uh, kind of the career norms for him, which are 381 on base and uh, 760 OPS. I think he ends up being a, a really nice piece offensively. He just takes one good at bat after the next, and he can play anywhere in the field. Was in uh, right field for the Cardinals on Saturday, and then Sunday was at first base. I mean, he's he's so valuable to this team. They recognize that. He went two for five with a run scored and an RBI in Saturday's game, and then Sunday, an even more impressive outing, three for five with two runs scored and an RBI uh, had a double in that game. He is just a dude at the top of this lineup. And I think when Lars Newpar comes back, which I think is in the offing, on Sunday he had a, a four-hit four game with Memphis, a couple of home runs. Uh, Keeley in STL, is her Twitter account, was on the beat down there in Jacksonville, was was follow, nice following her tweets about Lars Newpar. And I believe I saw a, a graphic, too, that said all his hits were above 100 mile per hour on the exit velo. A couple of home runs, a double, and a single in that game. So I don't know if they need to see more from him playing the field to get comfortable or if they can just go ahead and book that flight to D.C. and get him there to be in the outfield for Monday's game. I don't know how quickly that turnaround is going to be, but clearly 
he seems to be back on the uh, on the up and up after dealing with the back injury, the back spasms, as it was phrased, should be ready to go, it seems like, based on that performance. And so when that happens, it's going to be interesting. What happens to this Cardinals alignment? Nolan Gorman has really been going through it a little bit recently, um, had had another kind of tough weekend where the, the hits are not really coming for him in the way that we're really used to seeing a couple of offers on Saturday and Sunday. Check it out. His recent numbers for his last 15 games, I mean, 115 average with a 231 slug. That is very not Nolan Gorman-like, and we're talking about a multiple-week sample at that point. And you could even go back to his last 30 games where you've still got the six home runs in those 30 games, and so that's still like a 30-home run pace. Um, but it's really slowed down considerably of late. And over those 30 games, a 200 average, a 391 slug, um, 276 on base, which would equate to about a 660, 670 OPS, which is very much not what you've uh, come to expect of Nolan Gorman. And so does it get to the point where the Cardinals no longer consider him a full-time player? I would say that for sure where we thought, oh, he's playing lefty, righty, doesn't matter, which was that that Dodgers series, honestly, that we talked about close to a month ago, the last time the Cardinals won a series, that was kind of the coming out party for Nolan Gorman in terms of batting against lefties and righties. Um, I think he homered off of Julio Urias in that series. He homered off of another lefty reliever of the Dodgers and had a big-time series uh, in, in that May. It was like 18 through 21. And then we just haven't really seen him ever since then uh, kind of maintain that momentum that we thought he was picking up. So I don't know what ends up happening because you could go Donovan every day at second base if you're going to start to view Gorman as more of a part-time piece. Um, my thing is Ben Jordan Walker is going to carry this team offensively. He needs to bat, uh, to me, ahead of Contreras in the lineup, even though we did see a home run from Contreras on Friday, I believe, is when he hit that home run. And, um, you know, Cardinals need... I've been... I remarked this to my dad on Sunday. I just said, if they just had that one more veteran that you know is going to be a stable veteran force in the lineup, not necessarily on the level of Arenado and Goldschmidt, but just, like, give me that 800-815 OPS from another guy who's been around the block and you just know the consistency will be there, then this team really could take off, I think, because you're getting what you're going to get. I think Donovan can be a very consistent guy, but he's going to be more of a leadoff. Uh, Newt Bar, when he comes back, I think, uh, again, you're going to put... I would go Newt Bar, Donovan, one and two. I've already made that decision. I think you bump Gold, Goldsmith to three, Arenado to four. Um, the, the the packaging, those two righties around Nolan Gorman and, and sort of that two, three, four sandwich doesn't work anymore with the way that Gorman has been struggling. And so you kind of bump back to what you're familiar with from previous times. And to me, I'm putting Walker fifth in that alignment. There's a case to be made for Walker batting second, but I just like the at-bats that guys like Donovan and Newpark can take to kind of work a pitching staff to, to kick off a lineup, put Goldie and Arenado behind those two. And then Walker for me is the five hitter on this team until further notice. He's just been taking really good ABs. And then if Gorman's in the game, you maybe bat him sixth. Um, I could see wanting to break up the monotony of the righties a little bit if you wanted to bat him fifth and then have Walker sixth. But I just think right now, again, it comes down to if you have a big game at bat to to try and make a difference late in a game, would you rather it be Gorman or Walker right now? And to me, it's no contest. It's Jordan Walker with the way he's seeing the ball. And so I think you bump Gorman down a little bit, but there's also a conversation of who's in the lineup because when Newt Bar comes back, where does he play? Do they continue with this Tommy Edmond in center field situation, which I I, I, I don't want to 
diminish Tommy Edmond because I think he's done an admirable job in center, but has he done a good enough job that we're like, yeah, this is the way it needs to be moving forward? Absolutely not. Not to me, and, and I think he's got good range and pretty good instincts for an infielder, um, but, but I just don't think he is playing at a level that you're going to supplant the rest of your lineup and, and make all these changes to cater it around the notion that Edmund needs to remain in center field. I think Edmund needs to be in the lineup for sure, though. Paul DeYoung, to me, does not on a daily basis. You know, I know he's had some big moments recently, and, and he even hit a home run on Sunday to get his 10th of the season. And I want to kind of check out his stats here for a moment just to make sure since I've been giving it to you last seven, last 15 days, et cetera, for other players. Here's where it is for Paul DeYoung, who's uh, with a couple of home runs that he's hit over the past week, has a 462 slug over that span, but with a 231 average and has not drawn a walk to 11 strikeouts. So seven games, no walks, 11 strikeouts, 231, 462 slug. Uh, a couple of home runs are buoying the slugging percentage in that six for 26 stretch that DeYoung has had. Um, the 231 OBP combined with that 462 slug. Some quick math, that's about a 693 OPS. It's still not enough. And you can go out further. Last 15 games, the OPS uh, with a 218 batting average over the past 15. Just another kind of low OBP at 271. Slugging 345. That's a, a low 600s in terms of OPS. And it's the same over his last 30 games. Paul DeYoung, to me, does not have to be a regular player. Tommy Eben needs to be a shortstop more often than not especially when we're talking about Lars Newpark coming back. And so what do you do? You put Dylan Carlson in center field, or you put Lars Newpark in center field if you really just don't think that Dylan's an everyday player, which offensively he's begun to trail off a little bit over the past few days. Um, although getting a, a pinch hit opportunity Saturday and coming through with it didn't show very well necessarily on uh, Sunday. I think he was 0 for 5 with a couple of strikeouts. I still think overall I'd like to see his bat in there. But I can understand that you're going to want to give it bats to DeYoung. You're going to want to keep Gorman in there as much as you can, I think, just to try to work himself through some of the struggles. you got to move him down in the lineup, though. That's the thing. If you want to play Gorman, I support it because I talked about coming into the season, the reason I wasn't necessarily uh, – or, or pardon me, going into the offseason, I wasn't high on the notion that Gorman would maybe even be on this team because I thought with the way they treated him last year – which was, hey, he's in a slump. Okay, he's dead to us. We're going to put him on the bench. I I didn't have the faith that they would ride Gorman, who is a streaky player and has been throughout his time in the minors as well. I didn't have the faith necessarily that they would ride him through the hot and cold stretches to be able to get to uh, kind of the pot at the end of the rainbow, uh, so to speak. Now we're kind of seeing that tested a little bit after his great start, and he really hit his stride in mid-May or so, and now we're kind of wondering, okay, what do they do now that he's going through another lean period? And you have guys like Brendan Donovan that just have to stay in the lineup. Brendan Donovan was the reason I thought they would trade Gorman when they were looking for a Sean Murphy or were trying to make a move for a, a starting pitcher, which they never ended up doing in the offseason. But once they got to spring training and Gorman was there, that's when I, I turned my attention and said, all right, he's an all-star. I think they're really high on what he's going to be able to do. Now we're kind of at that crossroads where they're going to have to meet in the middle on what do they believe is possible and, and how far are they willing to go to allow Nolan Gorman to extract that on a daily basis? I think he should play, but I also think Jordan Walker should not necessarily be in this outfield while Newt Barr, potentially Carlson on a daily basis, and 
whoever else you've got, right? If it's Edmund, if it's Donovan that can play out there as well. Um, I, I just don't know that Walker as an outfielder, they're not going to do this. They're going to leave him in the outfield, I suspect. But what I would do and what I've said I would do when this moment arrived, and I think it is about to arrive at some point early this week, is I would have personally Dylan Carlson playing center field. And if the bat ends up trailing off to where that's no longer defensible, then I, I get that maybe you're going to look a different direction. Although I have been largely in support of hashtag everyday Dylan, giving him kind of the, the, the leeway to keep and earn that spot. I understand he's going to go through a little bit of struggle at times. A lot of these players do. But the way I would align it is to have Jordan Walker be the DH, which does mean you're pushing Donovan or Edmund or whomever off of second base. Nolan Gorman's a good enough defender, I think, to play second base. And so I would have Nolan Gorman out there at second most of the time. And, and Jordan Walker's in the lineup every single day, but largely I think as a DH is, is an okay way to do that. Um, so that's where I would personally have him, just because I think you can have a much more athletic alignment in the outfield if you put Edmund at shortstop. So we're not playing as much Paul DeYoung, but occasionally you can throw Edmund in a corner outfield spot. You could throw him back in center field if you really want to. But my outfield is going to be Newtbar, Carlson, and then probably Brendan Donovan, who I, I really like at second base, but I can put him in left field just the same, and he plays every day in my alignment as well. Brendan Donovan only sits when he needs a break. I, he, he, the at-bats he takes are so good. He's a grinder. He's he's the lead. I don't move him from leadoff. I put Newtbar probably batting right behind him, and, and Donnie stays the leadoff guy. I've been very impressed with what I've seen from him. But that's kind of what I would do just because I think you have a better alignment defensively in your outfield if Jordan Walker isn't in it. That being said, the Cardinals could be rewarded for the notion that they don't do that, that they say, nope, we know how good of an athlete Jordan Walker is. Right now, the reason it doesn't look great for him in the outfield is just because of a lack of experience with it. And the more he plays, the better he's going to get. And so if we if we see this through, two months from now, we could be rewarded by having more consistency from Walker. I just think throughout a series, you're going to have two or three plays that you're going to hold your breath on, and usually one or two of them when it comes to Jordan Walker is, is maybe going to go against you. And it's hard right now because we've talked about the Cardinals not having a margin for error. And so I just think they, they've kind of put Walker in a bad situation with how limited his exposure to outfield has been over the past 12 months, really just about the past 10 and a half months since he was told, hey, you're going to be an outfielder now. And so that's difficult for a guy who I think is is leading the charge offensively for this team. 12-game hitting streak, or I think 11-game hitting streak now. Homers in each of his past two games has looked really good at the plate. Um, but on the other side, I still just think you're you're asking for trouble a little bit when it comes to him defensively in the outfield. I think he will get better, and I think long-term, you almost need him for the flexibility to be able to man the outfield spot. And since this team is 14 games under, maybe they say, hey, I know we don't develop at the big leagues, but defensively, when it comes to this particular talent, we might just have to allow him to develop defensively at the big league level. Not saying that, you know, the, the, the Cardinals are admitting defeat on the season by doing so, but you can also make an argument that they'll be better off in the long run if they're able to run Jordan Walker out there in a corner outfield spot and be confident. I'm talking the next two, three, five, ten years and what he's able to do defensively in one of those spots. And so this just may be the learn-on-the-job time for him. Um, it's what I expect them to continue to do. I, I just don't know how they handle it in terms of Edmund if they're going to be committed still to him long-term in center field. Like he had a, a ball that he was going back on uh, over the weekend that pops out of his glove, doesn't make the play. I think that's a rarity, but also you can just tell in those moments that there's not a, a, 
a 100% level of comfort with some of those plays. He makes a ton of them because he's so darn athletic and he's a really good ball player. But I also think shortstop, the need could be there. And I, I guess they could just continue to see it through for Paul DeYoung. Uh, and he'll come up with some big hits and he'll end up with 20 to 25 home runs. There's no doubt about that. But I also don't know if in the long run you can expect Paul DeYoung to continue to have good enough at bats to justify the spot every day out there. He's got the 742 OPS, which to win the thousand bucks, I think, uh, from from Sean from Twitter, he's got to be 750 OPS with at least 400 plate appearances. And so I think I am ultimately going to come short on that non-bet where I was told on, on Twitter that if he had those numbers, guy would Venmo me a thousand bucks. Uh, I right now it's I would take the take the no side on that that I, I'm doubtful that Paul DeYoung will end up accruing um, the plate appearances and the OPS required to win that one. But it's interesting because if they really do like Tommy Edmond in center field uh, and, and they're willing to continue to to take the good with the bad when it comes to Paul DeYoung and, and kind of hunt for those home runs and those big damaging swings, they've they've been fewer and farther between. But I also think the Cardinals might have an inclination to to continue chasing that because they don't mind Paul DeYoung's defensive play at shortstop. They think he does a nice job. So it's going to be interesting to see the wrench that Lars Newpar throws into the plans. What would you do if you're Ali Marmo looking at this Cardinals defensive alignment with Newpar returning? I have a sinking feeling it ends up being Carlson that gets boxed out more often than not. Um, again, I don't think that's the right move because all you're going to do is if eventually you're willing to trade him, you're just kind of decreasing that trade value of the guy uh, compared to if he went out there and, and had the chance to show his versatility and his ability to come through at the plate, which again has been rather inconsistent, but there's a lot of guys you could say that about for this team right now. So let me know what you think on the YouTube comments, uh, youtube.com slash B 12 to find the YouTube channel. Or uh, if you're, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you're, you're certainly able to, uh, to comment below and make sure you subscribe to the Brendan Schaefer channel. A lot of fun things coming on the channel throughout the remainder of the season. But I do believe that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Thank you guys for bouncing back with me for this episode of Be Shafe Daily. Uh, like I had said off the top, uh, Friday did not have an episode after my my Nana, my mom's mom, uh, passed away over the weekend. So uh, tough time for the family. Thank you guys for all the support uh, as as it, it'll still be a, a tough time, I think, for my family coming up over the next week plus and uh, into the future as uh, as we move on without uh, one of our one important member of our family. But uh, appreciate you guys for all the support, for listening, and for hanging out with me. Uh, we'll continue, as always, to talk Cardinals baseball all season long. So thank you, guys. That's going to do it again for this edition of the show, and we will talk to you next time on Be Shape Daily. Peace.